Uh, so tonight we're joined by a man who's played over 200 games for New Zealand across a career that includes six international hundreds, two fivers, a hat-trick, three World Cups, the IPL, and plenty more highlights in between. He's been following this Black Caps summer as a part of the Magic Talk radio commentary team and is currently the bowling coach for the White Ferns. Jacob Warren, welcome to the Top Water Podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So we just mentioned there that you're, you're part of the Magic Talk team. How is it being back in the commentary box? Oh, I've really enjoyed it, actually. I did some TV stuff and a couple of radio games, I don't know, six or eight years ago. Um, but since retiring, this is my first real foray back into it, and I've enjoyed it, actually. And, I mean, what makes it easier is um, well, the group I've got around me, but also how well the Black Caps are playing. And it, uh, it obviously, uh, you know, you're just a glorified cheerleader when all you're doing is waxing lyrical about Kane Williamson and Cole Jameson and Henry Nichols and Tim Southey. So... Can't complain. It's been good to watch. Yeah, well, I mean, on to that, the, the Black Caps, they've won four from five T20s. They've won all of their tests, three of them by an innings, now ranked what number one in test cricket in the world. I mean, as a former player, someone who's kind of around the setup, how much pride do I guess you take, uh, you know, from from watching that? Oh, um, wow. Pride, yeah, I'm, I haven't really looked at it as pride. I I mean, obviously, I'm proud of them as New Zealanders and what they're doing for the Black Cap, but it's probably more the fact that, um, you know, I, I kind of know the sacrifices and the effort they're putting in, and by no means do I think we were as successful as this team. We had our patches, but these guys are so consistent. So I think, you know, I'm just happy for them, really, and I'm sure they've got a lot of satisfaction for the amount of effort they are putting in, and they're getting the results and the rewards for it as well. So happy for those guys all of them, but in particular the ones that I played with and spent some time with at the back end of my career. You mentioned the the cheerleader piece. As a as a commentator, you know everyone's taught to be impartial and never use the words we and they. How hard is it to remain impartial when you're, you know, when you have had that history of playing with and against some of those Black Caps players? Yeah, I remember saying we too many times when I was actually playing. So a little bit of TV stuff I'd done years ago when I was still playing, and that was. You know, basically, it was like, take the earphones off and the producers are saying, don't say we, please. Um, but I also got a little bit of rap over the knuckles for, um, I think it was day well, day four down in Christchurch when the Black Caps won. And um, and I said something along the lines of in the pre-day chat interview, and I said, um, you know, hopefully we get some early wickets and hopefully it's all done by T or something along those lines. Mm. And, uh, yeah, another one where it was like, oh, you can't sort of promote such a biased view you know mm. you can say hopefully the black caps think this could happen but you're not really allowed to be too opinionated uh, from my individual perspective a message for shane warne perhaps <laughs> in, in the lessons of commentary mm. i mean it, you can play as much of a cheerleader as you want on on this chat we're uh, that's what that's what we'll be doing even though we've got this aussie standing next to us yeah. but um I guess, uh, you know, there's been some talk about that ranking being kind of down to the fact that we play all these games at home and and all that stuff. I, I guess my question around that is, like, is New Zealand that hard a place to come? Like, we've actually, people talk about these green pitches. We've batted first in three of the four tests, I think, and still managed to put up pretty good totals. Like, what, what do you think it is that makes it so tricky for these teams to come? Or, or is that just a convenient excuse? Yeah, look, I think it's an excuse. Yeah, I mean, it's the good old cliche about it's the same for both teams. And as you say, we've had to bat it first on these green pitches more often than not. So Tom Latham and Tom Blundell should be the angry ones here because they're having to go out there and face it on on wickets which resemble the rest of the square. So 
Um, I think it's an excuse. I would have thought, given the COVID times as well, people would love coming to New Zealand. I know quarantine, the isolation period's hard, but then they can just walk the streets and enjoy themselves. Um, but also think you don't get any favours when you go to other parts of the world. So if there is any semblance of a home ground, home country bias, which I'm not saying there is, but if there is that perception, then I think other nations should actually have a look in the mirror because, you know, you go to India and you you don't get too many green wickets over there or the subcontinent full stop. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't have thought the times I went to Australia or England, places like that, their media are more than happy to jump on you as well. So I think there's, look, I think it's a bit of an excuse. And I think it's, the bottom line is just that this Black Caps team is very good, very good at home, especially, and very comfortable in our conditions. But I think they're a good side um, and they know what they're doing in these conditions. And, and you touched on, I mean, touched on a number of players, and I guess that's what's been so impressive about them this, this summer. It's been kind of contributions from everywhere, but I guess two of the biggest stars have obviously been Kane and, and Kyle Jameson. But, I mean, first on Kane, I think you played maybe when he first played his ODIs. I had a look yesterday, and he had his, started off with two ducks. Uh, but, I mean, did you, guys, did you guys know at the time that he was going to be, I mean, I feel like now he's almost... Well, I mean, you, people might argue from back in the day, but I feel like he's he's become our number one batsman of all time and, and still going. Um, but, I mean, did you guys know that at the time? Uh, yeah, I mean, there were two ducks to start, um, and I thought he, he was useless because he <laughs> – I said, what are you doing, mate? This is – who picked him? Um, but you actually knew, put the jokes aside, you, you knew what made that period, like – and I can recall it actually, was how level-headed he still was. He wasn't stressed – he wasn't like crying in the corner of the shed thinking, you know, this is too hard. Like, and I think that's the the best side of Kane. I mean, he plays a hell of a back foot drive, straight drive beautifully, got good balance, such late hands, you know, when he hits it through third man. Amazing technically in shot selection, but I think it's between his ears, which sets him apart. And he's humble and he's down to earth. Um, and he's actually a bloody hard worker as well. I found out, I didn't see, but I found out the day after he got his 200 in Christchurch, the next day's warm-ups, he was having throwdowns. You know, and it looked like every New Zealand weren't going to bat again. He'd just come up 200 and plenty. You know, he could have not had throwdowns, but that's the way Kane is. Mm. Um, so you could tell straight from the start. And I remember actually before he played for New Zealand, he got 100 um, Northern District, Central Districts. And I was playing in that uh, for CD against ND and he was 18, 19, he got 100 and just paced it so much more maturely than his, than his years showed. So you knew from the start he was going to be special. But to answer your question as well about the best ever, you can't. I know it's hard to compare generations with generations, but just look at the stats. He's getting that far ahead. I think that tells a story. Kyle Jamison's had a reasonable start to his international career. Physical attributes and all-round ability very similar to someone on this podcast, and it's not anyone in this room. Um, what do you think that it is about Kyle Jamison that's made him so successful early on in his, his test career and also in his uh, short form career as well. Excellent uh, returns in the, in the short form stuff. Well, I think you hit on it. Like his physical attributes make him a weapon. You know, he's, he's taller than me. So I'm 198, give or take, you know, splitting hairs at that height. And he's one of the few guys that I feel like I'm looking up to. Wow. So he's 203, I think. So taller than me and it's automatically you're going to get bounce. I mean, that was my major weapon, a bit of bounce and accuracy. Mm. But he's a bit quicker. He's a yard quicker than I was, or maybe not when I was younger. If I'm 143k an hour, just okay. quicker. That's ever. It. Perfect. <laughs> but it was in Kimberley, South Africa, where the <laughs> at altitude. So let's not get too concerned with that thinner <laughs> air. But uh, 
Yeah, I mean, he's, he gets bounce. He's got pace. The biggest thing for me this summer that I've seen him take a step forward is with his, his actual skill set and the ability to swing it both ways. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him down in Christchurch, like, where did you learn that in-swinger? And he said, oh, I knew I had to develop it. So last winter 2020, he just worked on this in-swinger. My God, within six months, it's knocking people over left, right, and center. So, um, yeah, look, he's got just physically the tools, which touch wood if he can stay on the park and look after that big frame. He's just going to be a weapon for years to come. And I think the missing link to that Black Caps test attack in particular, well, the whole bowling attack in particular, you've got swing and Southie and bolt, left arm and bolt, Wagner's short ball theory and left arm. And now you've got um, Jamison's height and swing and skills. It's pretty amazing, those tools. Do you think his ability with the bat will eventually lead him to go one higher than number eight for New Zealand and allow them to pick four pace bowlers and a spinner? Or do you think New Zealand will persist with the De Grandholm? Uh, Jamison type player, uh, the Grondholm or, or Daryl Mitchell type player at seven and, and keep Jamison at eight and pick maybe four, four pace bowlers moving forward. The selectors and, and Mike Hess and previously Gary Stead now, Brendan and Kane as captains have shown a willingness to be horses for courses. Mm. So I think when conditions suit, they'll pick those four seamers. If, the big test is when we have to go back to the subcontinent and, and actually play spinners, you know, and maybe two spinners, which I know we've done previously. So, but around Jamison's batting position, I think he's got the skills. He's already shown that. He's got a couple of international 50s, I think. Um, I mean, he used to be at an, in his younger days an opening batter. So he will have the foundation and the technique somewhere within him to be able to, to bat time and to play his shots. Um, I mean, his weaknesses and the holes in his game will be picked by the good teams, but um, I still think he'll be okay. I still think he'll contribute. Whether or not he goes to seven, that might also be about looking after him physically and his workload. And if he is a real um, uh, strike weapon for the Black Caps, um, especially as we move forward and maybe Tim and Trent get a bit older and I don't know, they'll have to retire one day, then then it might be best if Kyle just slips a bit further down as in stays at eight and then he can just manage his workload a bit easier. And you, you touched on it a little bit there um, on the spinners. I mean, you played a lot with Dan Vittori and, and even in your role now as a bowling coach. How, do you have any thoughts on how we can develop spinners in New Zealand? Because it's so hard to kind of get them a game here because, you know, obviously we've touched on our pitches and how just they suit the seamers a lot better. Well, and that to me is the number one thing. It's like, why would you want to be a spinner when you look at a lot of those first class and test match pitches? You know, you're not going to bowl. And if you do, you may not be used. Hey, what's that? Just be a little bit careful. You are talking to two spinners, but carry on. (laughs) So, yeah, apart from you guys, like, why would you want to bowl spin? (laughs) Uh, But but then, you know, you look at um, India, even though India had this really good depth of fast bowls nowadays, but, I mean, billions of dollars help develop that side of your game. But, you know, if you're growing up on grassless pitches, you'd probably start to try and spin the ball as opposed to seam up as well. So I think it's, I was mentioned about horses, of courses before. I think when you grow up, I mean, I've got two sons who play cricket and they're both bowling seamers. Mind you, they're going to be tall. So it's probably best if they don't get into turning it just yet. But, um, you know, I just think the conditions suit that. And I think it has almost like a flow on effect that um, our coaches um, lean more towards that. And I know for a fact, we've got a lot, lot more seam bowling specialists seem specialist bowling coaches than spin specialist coaches, you know, um, and it's just a ratio. 
um, and the amount of spin and the amount of seam as we have going around. Um, I don't think it's about a quality thing. I think there are some good spinners going around the traps. I really do. Because when they play for New Zealand, and the likes of Santner, um, East Sodi, even AJs Patel, Will Somerville's done pretty well. We've got some good international spinners going around, but they don't get a chance, you know, and I think that's got to do with our conditions. And, and just mentioning Dan, it looks like you've got a pretty good uh, beard going on there yourself for the Black Clash. He had a pretty good one last year. Have you seen him? Can we expect a similar thing? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he set the bar fairly high last year with his lumberjack look. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes because that is in what end of next week. So I'm uh, in training for that. Started today. Yeah, <laughs> I mean we we will touch a bit more on that later. But while we've got you, we want to talk a little bit about your um, your own career. We thought we'll probably just jump around a little bit and uh, and cover yeah. a bit of ground. But can you maybe take us back to that test debut? How did you get the call up? What are your memories of that first match? Um. Yeah, I remember the late Ross Dykes was the one who passed away just before Christmas. He gave me my call up um, at McLean Park. I remember pulling me aside, and I, I'd, I'd met Dykes here before, but he was gave me the, the the call up, which was great. I mean, the the day, debut is always special, and I think you don't actually appreciate what you're getting yourself into until probably later on, later in your career, if not at retirement, and especially when you see others make their debut and how excited they are. But you're just a, a possum in the headlights, really. But um, loved every minute of it. Um, you know, I, I remember well all three format. I actually know that's a lie. I don't remember when I played my first T20 game, but test in one day is especially a test match. I mean, T20 is such a big part of the modern landscape, um, and it pays a lot of bills, you know, when you can get to a certain level. But I still think 95% of cricketers would want to be remembered for their test stats and remember their test debut or their test highlights. So I'll always remember that fondly. Speaking of highlights, you, you had some reasonable success against South Africa. You, I believe your first 100 came against South Africa, another one later in a 90-odd. What was it about playing that side that you enjoyed so much? Was it coming up against players you'd played against before? Um, they've had a reasonable bowling attack at that time as well. I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say I felt like confident or, or comfortable against them. It's probably a better way to put it. I think um, I do remember that series when I got a 90 and a, um, the 100 against them. That was about 04. But I think combination of, it was the opposite to the pitches we know today in New Zealand. Like I remember there were some flat wickets. The Eden Park drop-in was a, just an absolute road. But at the same time, I think that was, there was probably a three or four year period there where, I mean, I played for about 11, 12 years for New Zealand. But I think that was the best period for me. So around about that 04 to 08, I was probably at my peak as a cricketer um still the odd injury but not the not the long-term layoffs that I probably came to get known for a wee bit as well but um once I think you get into a, a flow as a cricketer then you're okay I mean people talk a lot about form I talk more about confidence and I think if you get that then it just sort of snowballs from there and I think that whole period was a really good time for me um under John Bracewell Stephen Fleming I was young enough to still be wanting to just learn as much as I could, but at the same time, growing in maturity that I could, you know, I could actually stand up and look after myself as well. How long did that take you to become comfortable as an international cricketer or as a test match cricketer? I found talking to some other guests on the podcast, it, it almost feels like it takes a lot longer than, than maybe the viewer might think for a, an international cricketer to feel like they belong. I think it probably differs person to person. Um, uh, I, I think for me, it probably took 
three or four tests and maybe half a dozen one days. And even then, I mean, I never got complacent. I never got carried away and thinking, here we go, you know, I'm the next whatever. Um, but I remember my test debut, I got a duck and I remember my feet not moving. And I, I actually shouldered arms to a to a ball off Habajan Singh got LBW. Still think it pitched outside. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, because your feet just don't move when you're a bit nervous. And then the second test, I got a dozen or something like that. Um, actually hit the winning runs in the second innings off my thigh pad, <laughs> um, but I'll take it. Um, but even then, you're kind of like, oh, do, and I honestly think, I mean, people like to say, oh, just go out there and do it. And, you know, you've done what you could or you, what have you been doing up to this point? Just do that and you'll be fine. Yeah, okay. If it was that easy, I think we'd all be averaging, you know, 50, 60 and it'll be, the game would be too easy. I mean, I've got this theory that I think you need to be successful at whatever level. So whether it's going from minor association cricket to, to first class or first class international, I think you've got to actually have a taste of success before you actually believe that you do belong and that you are good enough to be there. And no matter what your coach or your, your psych or your teammates or your captain say, um, you know, your biggest critic and your biggest fan and cheerleader is yourself. Um, and so I think until you have a taste of that success at whatever level it is, um, can you honestly believe that you deserve to be there? Not until I think you do it. So I remember going to Sri Lanka and I got 70 odd against Miralithra and on turning wickets, which probably made it even sweeter. And then it was kind of like, oh yeah, I am okay. You know, I can do this. I'll be all right. A pretty memorable 2011 World Cup quarterfinal for you. Four wickets and, and uh, a, re, a you know, pretty good catch to go along with that great catch. Uh, what do you remember from from that encounter as a spectator, as a fan? It felt like it was a pretty feisty game. What were your What were your memories of the the 2011 quarterfinal against South Africa? Um, yeah, it was feisty. It was almost like of of our era, which is different now. It was uh, you know, we were the underdogs. We were the fighters. We were punch above our weight, all that sort of stuff. Whereas I think the side shifted into, you know, they they are favourites going into a lot of games. Mm. Um, you know, made two World Cup finals on the bounce. I mean, I was fortunate to make, the way I say it is I went to three World Cups and made two semi-finals. Then I retire and they start making finals. So <laughs> I should have retired earlier. Uh, but that's, that quarterfinal in particular, we were massive underdogs. I mean, I think South Africa were probably up there with India and Australia as favourites for the whole tournament. Um, and we hadn't played that well. We'd lost to Australia and got absolutely thumped by Sri Lanka, I think it was. We'd lost to India in a warm-up game. We were just getting by. We'd just scraped into the semis. Um, and we were playing in Dakar and it was... But, but at the same time, you know, I think it's well documented that South Africa, you know, the word choke comes to mind, but I don't think it's that. I just think they have such high expectations of themselves and from their public that it's a hard bar to reach, you know. Um, and maybe they are under, under a bit more pressure because of that. Um, but yeah, it was a cool game. And there was obviously a little bit of aggro um, at one point when we got A.B. de Villiers run out and we let Fuff Duplessis know that, that, you know, that was a pressure moment um, and he's gone on to bigger and better things. But at the time, that was a, a key pivotal moment of that game and it turned out to be um, yeah, a massively important for us, that run out. Um, ball was, I remember the ball was reversing and the wicket was starting to stay low and it felt like the lights weren't that great. And it was bloody dark. Um, but all in all, we defended a low total and uh, it was a cool feeling. And I mean, we can we can add the explicit tick to the thing if we need to. But can you share anything from the, that exchange with Faf? Uh, I, I, Kyle Mills. Yeah, and no, I'm just trying to 
vividly remembered. Yeah, I mean, there was obviously a few F-bombs and whatnot going on in there, but it was, I mean, I think at the time, Fuff had only played a handful of games. His quality was undoubted, and he's gone on to, to really good things. But mm. like I say, at the time, and it happens all the time, you know, you just get reminded about the situation of the game, and I wouldn't even call it sledging, really. It's just a reminder that, hey, that was a, you know, an important time of the match, um, potentially not a great decision. You've just run out of a world-class player. Um, you know, let's see how it goes from here. But Kyle Mills, obviously, the, the thing most documented was that he was running the drinks out and got caught up in it. Mm. And next thing, he's getting sensitive fined or something like that, which was pretty funny that the, the, the 12th man got done for got done for a bit of uh, banter when he was carrying the drinks. And, I mean, you know, we could continue on mentioning other highlights of yours on paper. I mean, you've, you scored a Test 100 at Lords. You scored a, a hundred quick-fire 100 against Australia in an ODI. You got a, you know, you got a hat-trick. But are there any favourite memories uh, that you have that stand out for you? Uh, apart from getting married, guys, I've got to say that. Um, the cricket field, of course, I mean. Yeah, got you. Um, well, I think the 100 at Lords, given, I mean, if there are cricket fanatics listening, then it's a given that that's the home of cricket and you're on the honours board there forever, which is cool. Plus, that was a really good bowling attack with uh, Anderson and Broad. Side bottom was bowling bloody well then. Um, but the other one that stands out in Tesco 100 at the Gabba against Australia with McGrath and Gillespie and Warren um, and the likes of Gilchrist and Ponting and Hayden and Langer and Simons and Clark and all those bloody guys hanging around, which was pretty cool. I think from a team perspective, I mean, it's nice to talk about individual highlights, but I remember 2003 um, match against South Africa. There were two matches there, actually. There was one against the West Indies where we defended a low total and just fielded like demons. And for some reason, that sticks in my mind. Um, but the big one from 2003 was um, when we beat South Africa at Johannesburg at the ball ring. Um, when we chased down, I forget, but it was quite a big total actually, but we chased it out. Fleming got 100, Astor got runs. I think McMillan got runs and it, it was just awesome because it was, you know, that's not called the ball ring for nothing. 40 odd thousand screaming South Africans and, and we silenced them, which was awesome. That, that was one of the, I yeah I remember that game very vividly I, yeah one of the best hundreds yeah. I've ever seen I think Fleming's, Fleming's yeah game. yeah I remember running down and I, I've seen highlights of it and it's all a bit cheesy I wasn't one for running onto the field and stuff but uh, the ball ring you sit oh you sit up high because the ground sort of the the ovals dug into the ground and um, where the players viewing areas and you've got to go down this tunnel uh, stairs and it's probably bloody about hundred meters from viewing area down the tunnel onto the ground and. I remember running out and all being, you know, cheesy and high fives and smiles and jumping around like nothing else. But um, it was such a good game and such a good feeling. I probably couldn't have controlled it, to be fair. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you, you on the on the flip side. I mean, you touched on injuries before. How tough was that side of your career? And and I guess probably more the comebacks and and all of those kind of things. Yeah, the injury is not the problem. Um, not many actually really hurt. You know, it's not like you're up all night with pain or having to take painkillers. Um, it's more the rehab, which just becomes, and it's more of a, a mental burden than a physical one. So the, just the tedious nature of going to um, physiotherapy, um, no disrespect to all physiotherapists in the world, but just the monotony of it all and going through the rehab and the and rehab, um, you know, are quite so small, quite often... Um, you know, uh, fairly one-dimensional movements and you're just getting some strength and movement back into whatever's injured. So I just got a little bit sick of that. And I think at the end of the day, my 
my mind had enough for that than my actual body, even though my body was a bit sore. But uh, yeah, it was tough. And I think also the the consistent um, kind of negativity around myself and my frame started to wear me down as well. And you sort of re, you, you sort of struggle to realise why people take that angle, because if they're disappointed with me not playing or making a side or being injured again, then you know try standing in the person's shoes for once who's actually going through that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how much do you think about that now that you're in the commentary box and, and making those things? Because, yeah, like you say, it seems oh. like the mental side of, you know, the, sorry, the, you know, the outside noise was was a big factor. Mm. Oh, and I, I just use the hell out of them now. Bugger it, I've retired. <laughs> um, no, I think, look, I'm, I know we said earlier, like, it's easier to be a cheerleader with a black cap. Even if they weren't winning or they'd lost a test or one, in fact, I commentated when Pakistan won the third T20 at Napier. Like, it's still a good game of cricket. And I always think there's two sides to a story. And if someone doesn't bowl that well, well, probably it's because someone's batting really well at the other end or vice versa. Um, so I like to try and look at it that way. Some would just call me a little bit optimistic or maybe a little bit too positive. But um, that's the the angle I'm trying to take of it all because I don't think you can ever say probably all sport, not just cricket. I don't think you'll ever see a professional athlete out there um, playing with a lack of effort or um, not trying their best. So I think it's probably the right thing to do is never question that sort of ethic or attitude that someone's bringing to the game. You had a career that you said spanned 12 years and and you've seen a lot both as a player and, and now as a, as a commentator and as a coach. How has the environment of playing cricket changed over the course of your career and then subsequently as part of your time, you know, as a coach and now as a commentator? Um, well, I was fortunate enough to be with the Black Caps in March 2020. So last year, got an opportunity in the Chapel Hadley series over there. Unfortunately, that only lasted a week and then COVID brought us home. Um, but it was an opportunity to see where the side had moved to. So I retired in 2013, I think it was, or 14. And so we're, we're talking six, seven years later. And uh, there were definitely some areas that had shifted. There were some areas that hadn't, to be fair, if I'm honest. Um, but I just think it's hard to give too many examples, be really in a nutshell specific, but I just think everything's a lot more well-managed and controlled. And that's everything from, uh, say, bowler's workloads to the amount of time training to, you know, your rest and recovery time to, you know, travel and time between games and when your wives and families and kids can come. Everything is, um, you just looked after a lot better. And I don't mean looked after in remuneration. I just mean you're treated it's a lot more professional, so to speak. Um, and I think that's just a sign of the times. And, and again, it's not a slight on, say, managers, coaches, SNC, administrators when I was playing. I mean, because I think the players have shifted too. And I think it's just the natural progression. And probably all sports are like that. You know, if you look at rugby, you know, I watched old rugby games and jerseys are hanging off them and they're just physically different specimens. The same thing goes with cricketers. You know, I'd probably have to shed about 20 kegs to, to make the team nowadays, you know. They're different looking guys, but it's what you got to do to keep up with um, the Joneses in today's world. Indeed. And, and speaking of which, you were also part of the early days, the early seasons of the IPL with first with CSK, a huge tournament now, but what was it like in the formative years of the IPL? Was Were all the parties as advertised? What was the balance of, you know, on-field intensity versus that kind of off-field experience? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was, um, I think the first couple of years, the balance was probably slightly wrong. I mean, it wasn't completely 
parties and mayhem off the park and then cricket was priority number two. But I just think, well, put it another way, I know today, even 2013 with Mumbai, which was my last year at the IPL, Mm. things had changed, shifted dramatically. um, And I've got no doubt they would have continued to. But at the same time, you know, you're over there for a long time. If you've got, you know, a week between games and you're hanging out with a whole lot of international stars and there's an opportunity to get to know them better socially, then you're going to do that for sure. But I think the first year or two, that that mix, and it's no fault of anyone's, I don't think they were trying to find their space or they were trying to find their niche in the world cricket market. And I think getting, you know, fashion designers and concerts and Bollywood this and that and, you know, um, moguls all around the place, um, it kind of just skewed it a wee bit. Um, whereas now I think absolutely cricket is the 100% focus. With all of the kind of bubble to bubble and and teams, you know, having to be in isolation and quarantine together, you know, it looks like moving forward, we'll still have that at least for the foreseeable future. How much of that kind of team camaraderie and off-field interaction is going to become important for players to offset the monotony of bubble life and the potential impact on their mental health for being in quarantine and, and confined quarters for such a long period of time. Yeah, I think, look, if you only had one tour a winter and so you're only coming back into the country with, with your two weeks quarantine then, and I suppose it depends where you're going really. I mean, I know some countries are a lot different with their uh, regulations and protocols, but um you just I come back to the whole management around the players and teams nowadays. And I mean, if you were coming here, there and everywhere and in quarantine every second month, then I think it would start to wear you down. And at some point you've got to be able to see your families and sleep in your own bed. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would like to think the player welfare is at the forefront of, I'm probably, who am I kidding? It's probably commercialization is the forefront, but uh, mm. player welfare has got to be up there as well. And um, players will be rested. They'll be rotated if need be. But, um, you know, I, I would hope, God, I don't know. I hope we're not on it for too much longer, you know, with the vaccination and changes, but let's wait and see. But I, I all I can say is from my experiences with, say with the white ferns um, and also some chat with some of the black caps guys is there are plans in place to ensure that, you know, it's not just to go overseas, come back, do quarantine, have a week at home, do it all again, and it's hard work. So you've just got to make sure that players' welfare is looked after. And, I mean, you mentioned your, just now your White Ferns bowling coach role. I mean, was coaching something you always thought about getting into? Yeah, I always had an interest in it. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I did, I played professionally first class or international for 17 years, and it kind of felt like, you know, I know it is kind of cliche to play cricket and then either commentate or um coach uh, but yeah for me i knew it was part of what i wanted to do to stay involved in the game um at the same time i didn't want to I, I mean so i've tried to get some experience away from from cricket as well i've had various jobs i've been actually an employee at massey for about four or five years at massey university so tried to get some other experience in my life to find balance and um kind of cross over some skills that i learn and that world into my cricket life and vice versa. So I've been fortunate enough for Mass University to give me that opportunity, but the coaching thing in particular, yeah, um, I think I would have been a remiss. It would have been remiss of not look down that path, considering that A, I was very interested in coaching, but also B, like I said, I've done 17 years of cricket and it was kind of like doing, going to university and getting your degree and your master's, your honours, your PhD because of the time I'd invested into the game. And there was, 
you know, I needed to use that knowledge and experience. That's a good point. I've never never heard anyone describe it like that, but you're, you're right. It is like going to your, your cricketing school, isn't it? But I mean, on, yeah. on the, the White Fern squad, I mean, how do, how do you feel like uh, you're all going at the moment, obviously building towards the World Cup next year? Um, is there any more cricket even on the horizon planned for the summer? Uh, yeah, hopefully. Um, yeah. I think... Um, I think there are some draft schedules in place uh, for later this summer with a couple of sides to tour here. But, um, yeah, we'll wait and see how that goes. Obviously, with COVID times, there's, um, there's more to think about than just the logistics and operations of a team coming in. Uh, but the Wyoferns at the moment, I mean, we went to Australia in September, October last year and got taught a lesson by Australia, who are the world champions at the moment, or of the 2020 format. Um, not one day is that is England. But... Australia's a very good side, good skills. And the most the scary thing from my point of view is their depth. You know, they 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 just can count on or call on a number of uh, players that um, are world-class. And they, that's what sets them aside from the other top sides like England and India and even ourselves. Everyone's got good players, but Australia has more good players than anyone else. So um, that was a tough tour. And, and moving now to the next kind of game on your horizon, the, the Black Clash. When, when we kind of see these games as fans, we kind of, you know, think about them as a, an enjoyment and, um, you know, a bit of a spectacle for, for the fans. But how much does pride come into it for, for you guys as cricketers taking on the rugby players? Uh, well, I played in it last year for the first time. I didn't play in year one. Um but last year when I played, I was more worried about not making a dick of myself. I wasn't worried about winning or losing. Um, I nearly made a dick of myself because I nearly gave up 15 runs in the, in the last over to give it up. But it wasn't really to a rugby player. It was to Mahela J. Woodner. So I could have held my head high, kind of. Um, but, yeah, look, it's fun. It, I mean, and that's the whole purpose. It's a fun game. It's an exhibition game. Uh, I mean, it's not the World Cup final, but... In saying that, I don't. I don't think it matters what sport you're playing. When you get some current or former athletes out there in the middle, then those competitive juices just automatically start flowing, and it's a given that people are going to get competitive and want to win. Um, had a lot of fun last year. It was good catching up with the likes of Vittori and Fleming and Harris and Astle and all these guys that I I see every now and again, but actually not running around in the park. So I'm looking forward to this year as well. And some pretty good names actually in that um, rugby side from a junior cricket point of view. I've um, actually found digging around some old things the other day. I found a cricket card of Jason Spice uh, from from well back in the day. I think he must have been at the academy. Uh, like Andrew Ellis was a, a handy batsman. He's actually my first wicket uh, as a, a club cricketer down in Christchurch. Uh, and there's you know there's Geordie Barrett. Obviously, people talk about his cricketing. Israel Dag, did you ever come in, in contact with Israel Dag when he was a youngster coming through uh, CD stuff? No, I was probably, how old would he be? Early 30s, maybe. I'm uh, a lot older than that. So no, but I'm well aware of his, um, the story about him hitting 140K or something like that. Yeah. He didn't look 140K last year at Napier, but he's had 20 years of pushing weights in the gym since since that was recorded. So, But the other, the one to look out for is um, Geordie Barrett, who... Um, this must have been about 2016, something like that. 2017, I was assistant coach with the Central Stags and Geordie had just left school and he was he had played for CD under-19s and had done really well. Um, and I think he was non-travelling reserve with New Zealand under-19, seam bowler. 
and he had, we were playing over at Pukekura Park and uh, obviously he's a Taranaki boy and um, he had come down to, we'd had a few injuries and whatnot, um, not me, I was assistant coach, but um, he came down and he was 12th man for us for a few games. So uh, yeah, we had Geordie Barrett carrying the drinks um, for a few games. So I reminded him about that last year when we played, but he still had a bit of pace. And I think he still plays a bit of club cricket. So um, anyway, he's one loss to cricket because he actually had some good skills. Stuart talks in almost reverential terms every time Hagley Park is discussed on the podcast. Um, under lights this year, as I understand it, at Hagley Park this year. Do you think that's going to be an advantage for the cricket guys, having probably played cricket under lights before, do you, or do you reckon it's going to cause some problems all round? Uh, well, no one would have played under those lights. And sometimes it's, it's funny, like not all lights are lights, you know. Um, mm. There's always little idiosyncrasies, no matter what ground it is, the height of the the towers, the angle of the lights, you know, the strength of them, I don't know, the lux or whatever it's called. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting. But, yeah, you probably think cricketers would have the upper hand in terms of catching a ball coming out of a black sky. Um, but mind you, rugby guys play at night as well. Um, but, it, it, yeah, it'll be good to play at Hagley. I never played on that myself. I played on the the old Hagley Park when the squares, studio, if you know Hagley, then it was all spread out before the actual oval was there with the banks. So I have played at Hagley Park, but not Hagley Oval. So I'm looking forward to it. What are your memories of, of that? Uh, as as Baldy said, I spent a lot of time at, on Hagley 3 for, for Rickett in there. Um, they actually played some max cricket on whichever the one, if you're sitting in the players' pavilion at in the current Hagley Oval and you're looking diagonally across whatever that um, club rooms is over towards that side, is that Rickett in? I don't know. Uh, oh, Yeah. Depends which Sullivan's. way. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. One of those ones there, they played um, a whole lot of cricket max games. So this is going back, God, a long time, 20 years. And uh, actually more than that, 25 years. And uh, so I played on there. And then that's some underage cricket or something. I don't know. But um, uh, it's a it's a great park now. I mean, being down there last week, that oval, and we had good weather for most of it. Really good crowds. The pitch is unbelievable. I hope it slows up a bit considering or compared to what we got in that test match, but uh, should be good. And, and from the super smash I saw last night and today as well, it'd been well supported. So I hope that remain, remains the same. Yeah, look, I could talk about Hagley for, for a long time, but we, before we let you go, prediction, are you guys going to take it out again? That cricket side does look very strong. A lot of uh, impressive names on the list there. Mm. Well, you'd hope so. Playing, <laughs> You'd hope a cricket team takes out the cricket match, but year one, it didn't work out that way. And to be fair, we nearly lost last year. So... Well, I think that's the, the beauty of it is that it sounds like it's an easy one for cricket, but, um, you know, it seems like us cricketers are a lot older than the rugby boys and, and their expected players always always front up. But um, it should be good, actually, and I'll throw a couple of plugs in there. It starts TV1 next Friday, 6.30 p.m. And I know that tickets are still available at blackclash.co.nz, so if you're around, it'll be a hell of a game with some big names, rugby and cricket, so it'll be good fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Everyone should, uh, yeah, everyone down the cross at Jerry should, should get involved. Uh, yeah, everyone's always about signing autographs and things, and yeah, it'd be fantastic. Yeah. So thanks very much for, for joining us, Jacob. It's uh, It's been a pleasure chatting to you on the Top Order Podcast. All good. All good. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show and, and sticking with us all the way to the end. You may have noticed that we asked Jacob about the White Ferns' upcoming schedule 
since we've actually interviewed him, we have now had an announcement from New Zealand Cricket and the White Ferns are having an incoming tour. They've got uh, England coming to us first at the end of February and then Australia following. So that's fantastic news for the White Ferns. We're just going to play you a little clip by uh, Sophie Devine uh, and then uh, that'll be the end of the show. Uh, all right, Sophie, well, obviously after the year that, uh, the, that's hit the sporting world, how exciting and relieved are you to see these fixtures that we've got for the White Ferns upcoming? Oh, look, it's a fantastic opportunity for us to get back out to be able to play in front of our home crowd and, and to have a crowd, um, like you say, in the current environment we found ourselves in at the moment. It's fantastic. And to have two of the best sides in the world coming to our shores, it's going to be a great couple of series for the White Ferns. Yeah, it's not just any old opposition, is it? Tell us about the challenge that's facing the White Ferns. Yeah, look, it's great. Obviously, England, the current 50-over world champs, and, and we have them first and, and playing down here at the University Oval is going to be fantastic. But as well, playing double-headers with the men, I think any opportunity we get to play alongside the boys, we certainly love their support and we love being able to go and watch them after. So really looking forward to that. How do you think sort of uh, this, the COVID environment has impacted women's cricket? Oh, look, I think unfortunately it's had... had quite a big impact. I think we've seen a lot of countries haven't been able to play any cricket since uh, the T20 World Cup uh, early last year, which, which is a shame. I think here in New Zealand we're so fortunate. Obviously the Dream 11 Super Smash has been fantastic. The HBJ Shield, all the men's cricket. I think sometimes you do forget about you know the situation going on around the world. So look, fantastic to see that we've got you know some massive cricket games coming up for us. 